That could be suffering that is relational from people around you. It could be suffering that is more circumstantial, um, layoffs or financial, financial suffering. Um, when, have you, when have you suffered? I'd like you to even just now think of a time. It might not be hard for you to do that. It might be right in your face. But what, um, what's a time that you have suffered? See, suffering is the, the great the great equalizer, that it plays no favorites. It doesn't matter if you're a man or woman. It doesn't matter if you are black or white. It doesn't matter what your, what your social status is, what your economic status is. It doesn't matter um, if you were raised in a good home, if you were raised in a bad home. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Suffering is an equal opportunity. It plays no favorites. We all suffer. We all experience suffering. That's something that is just common to the human experience, whether it's big or whether it's small. We all experience suffering. That's something that, that we all know. I don't, I don't have to tell you that. And one of the things that, that I think is, 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 is we think about suffering tonight. Some of you are probably suffering now. Some of you maybe just endured some season of suffering, some period of suffering some of you maybe are really close with someone that's suffering. You yourself, maybe you're not suffering, but you're really close with someone that's suffering. So you're still feeling the pains of, of suffering. And some of you don't know it yet, but you're, you're going to suffer soon. And I don't say that to be grim, um, but it's, it's around the corner for you. It, it might be later today, it might be next month, it might be sometime this year, but suffering always comes by surprise. None of us expect or plan for suffering, but, but, it, but it happens. And as a pastor, pa- uh, you know, the job as a pastor, it's kind of made for people that are at least quasi-bipolar because um, there's great joys and great lows sometimes in the same day. I get to be there to dedicate babies and get to be there when maybe a baby is lost. I get to be there when a marriage starts and get to be there when a marriage is breaking. I get to be there when people say, uh, you know, how could God love me so much? This is great. And get to be there when people say, I don't think God loves me. This is horrible. And sometimes that happens in the same day. And one of the things that, that I've seen in my experience as a pastor, not just my own suffering, but being a part of and, and being involved in other people's suffering, or one of the things that we also see in the Bible is that we are often ill-prepared for suffering. It's just something we're not well prepared for. It's not something that, that we, we really know how to handle all that well. And I think that my, my hope tonight as we, as we talk about this, and maybe some of you are wondering, why are we talking about suffering on Mother's Day? But I think mothers would attest to the most suffering of all, so it's actually very relevant. Uh, but we're really talking about it because it's in the Bible in, in the next section here. But, but one of the things is... I hope tonight to either help you if you're in the middle of suffering or to, to prepare you. And we can never be fully prepared for suffering, but to at, least, to at least be somewhat prepared for the suffering that will come, will inevitably come, will definitely come in our life. It, it's not a question of, of if we will suffer. It's a question of when and how and how long and how intense. I mean, that, that, that's the only question. The question is not if we will experience suffering. And, and the Bible has much to tell us about suffering. In fact, the very first book that was written in the Bible, not the first book that is in the Bible, Genesis, but the first book historically, chronologically, the first book written in the Bible is Job, which is all about suffering. And from cover to cover, the Bible is filled with Stories of suffering, lessons in suffering, cries in suffering. It's filled with suffering. So I believe that God wants to help us be prepared for and to deal with and to learn how to suffer. And so tonight we will look at Paul and we'll look at a snapshot of, of some suffering that he was experiencing as he wrote this letter to the Philippian church, we'll look at a snapshot of some suffering that he dealt with. But, but before we look at the particular instance that, that Paul was facing, I want to step back a little bit because Paul was a man that faced intense suffering in his life. If we want to learn about suffering, there's 
probably no greater person to learn about it from than Paul. Paul experienced a lot of suffering. He experienced great, great depths of suffering. And so I want to get inside of Paul's head for a moment and hear about him and hear about what he says he experienced in suffering. And then we'll look at the particular situation in the Philippians. But there's this one passage where Paul kind of just lists out his resume of suffering. Here's what he says in his letter to the Corinthian church. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. That's 39 if you're counting. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Not that kind of stoned. I mean, it's uh, talking about rocks being thrown at him. Three times, some of you don't know what I was talking about, but (laughs) I'm saying that it was a different kind of stoned than Denver stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. It sounds like a bad Dr. Seuss book. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. It says, on top of it all, I'm a pastor and I care about people and they've got a lot of issues and it gives me anxiety. So he's got all of this stuff that he lists. This, this is Paul's resume of suffering. Some of you might be able to write a similar resume of all of these things that have happened in life. Paul's gone through all of it. He's experienced all of it. A lot of suffering that Paul has faced. And now we'll, we'll, we'll go to where he's at in the Philippian church. And as he writes this letter, the letter of Philippians, it is birthed out of a context of suffering. Paul writes the letter from jail. He writes the letter from jail, which means that he's, he's away from his family. He's away from his friends. He's not able to do that which he's called to do, that which he's passionate about doing, starting churches and visiting with these churches and strengthening these churches. He's not able to do that, so he's kept from what he's passionate about. He's kept from family and friends. He has the imminent possibility of death on the horizon. They have him kind of under house arrest, and they're not totally sure what to do with him. But many people think it was after this that he was executed whether or not that's the case, he, he has the possibility of impending doom coming. He's chained to somebody every hour of the day. So he had this chain and had a Roman guard chained to him all day, all night. Some of you that are introverted, that would be suffering enough. Just I had to be chained to somebody? When he's sleeping, when he's using the restroom, when he's trying to think, when he's trying to write the Bible, he's got somebody chained to him. Hopefully it wasn't on his writing hand. He's chained. So he, he's, this letter comes out of a context of suffering. Not only that, but he has people that are out to hurt him, out to harm him. People that are against him. People that are trying to do him harm. So Paul writes this letter out of this context of suffering. And and here's here's a snapshot of what he says is happening. And then as we look at that, I want to take a broader, just a broader lens and look at some things we learn about suffering from what Paul shows us in this brief section. So here's what he says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, this is everything I just described, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, these are other Christians that are not in jail, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So because Paul was imprisoned, these people, it gives them kind of a boost of confidence to say, man, this really does matter. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former 
proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So if you have your Bible with you and you want to keep it open to, to this section, Philippians 1, 12 through 18, if you don't have a Bible, you can take the one in front of you. Uh, that's our uh, gift to you. Let's look at some stuff about suffering that Paul Paul shares with us some things that we see about suffering from, from this little snapshot of Paul's life. See, one of the first questions that we ask about suffering is, where does, where does suffering come from? What's the source of suffering? Where, where did this come from? Where does suffering come from? And Paul gives us two broad categories that we often experience in our life. The first is just circumstantial suffering. It's difficult circumstances. This means it's not necessarily people that are doing something to you, but it's just, it's just difficult circumstances in life. This might be layoffs. This might be sickness. This might be um, natural disaster. This might be just different hard circumstances that are happening in your life. We've had these in our life. We, we have just hard circumstances. There's no one we can point the finger at. There's no one we can blame. It's just hard circumstances. And Paul is in prison. That's a hard circumstance. He's just in prison. He's chained to somebody. Just hard circumstances that you face. Absence of family and friends. It's, it's hard circumstances. Another big broad category that Paul gives us is not just difficult circumstances, but difficult people. Paul says there's people, and this is a weird way to hurt somebody. I don't know if you've ever tried to hurt somebody by preaching the gospel, but that there's people preaching, and Paul says, you know what, they're preaching Christ, so whatever, I'm just going to, I don't care. But he says that some of them are preaching Christ in order to afflict him, in order to harm him. They're doing it out of selfish ambition. They're doing it maybe for their own gain. Paul's in jail. They want to kind of take the position of leadership now and make a name for themselves. Maybe they're preaching, hey, look at Paul. He must be a loser, and that's why he's in jail. I, we don't know exactly why or, or what. The, we don't know what they're doing, how it is that they're trying to afflict him through their preaching, but they are. They're trying to harm him. Their, their motives are, yeah, they're preaching truth, but it's out of selfish ambition. And they want to afflict him. They want to cause more. So he's already in jail. And now they just want to add, add fire to, gas to the fire, whatever the saying is. They just want to make it worse. Some of us have difficult circumstances, and that's where suffering comes from. But, but sometimes it's difficult people. There's just people in your life that are out to harm you for whatever reason. Paul's a good guy. It's not, he's not doing anything. But these people want to harm him. They're just out to get him. You may have had people like this in your life. They're trying to harm your reputation. Maybe they talk about you behind your back. Maybe they're just rude all the time. Every day you're going to work and they're just a jerk. They're just rude. They're just mean. And it's just, man, I'm suffering. Every day I go to work, I just live in a, in a prison of suffering because of you. I'm not saying you should say that, but you could. Um, Sometimes we just have difficult people in our life. Suffering comes from the difficult people in our life. Sometimes these people aren't even directly trying to purposefully, intentionally harm you, but they're still creating suffering for you. Difficult people can create suffering to us without necessarily trying, they're not necessarily out to get us, but they still just create difficulty in our life. Maybe because they're just a selfish person and... The effects of that, the, the tornado of their selfishness just affects your world. Maybe, uh, you know, you could think about this in the case of somebody that's driving recklessly or somebody that does a hit and run or uh, someone that's driving intoxicated and harms someone. They weren't directly trying to harm that person, but because people are sinful people, we have difficult people in our life, it creates suffering. So, the two big, broad categories that Paul says that he's experiencing are both of those. Difficult circumstances 
difficult people. Now, the Bible says there's other places, other origins that suffering comes from. Paul doesn't mention these directly here, but some of the other places the Bible talks about of where suffering comes from, one of those is Satan himself. That Satan can cause suffering, that he can bring suffering to us in various forms. Sometimes that's a spiritual suffering where we're experiencing just a a barrage of, of lies that we hear, condemnation. Sometimes it's him actually inflicting some sort of oppression upon us. But Satan can cause suffering. The Bible also says that just foolish living can bring about suffering. So maybe, maybe your, your diet is just poor, and so you're sick all the time. And it's not, it's not someone that's doing that to you. It's not just, oh, the, the gods are against me. It's, no, you're eating a lot of Cheetos, you know. Or maybe your car is breaking down. And it's not necessarily, oh, my word, the devil is against me. I must pray. No, maybe you just need to change your oil and you've been careless with maintenance. You just need jiffy lube, not prayer. So sometimes suffering just comes from foolish living. Sometimes it comes as a result of of our sin. Uh, The Bible even talks about in in the Corinthian church that we talked about before, uh, people are abusing communion. So they're getting drunk off of the communion and they're, they're, they're... they're gorging themselves. It's becoming this big, this big feast, and they're, they're taking from people that don't have it. And it's this big mess, and, and God actually inflicts upon them sickness. And some of them die. Uh, so sometimes suffering comes as a result of our sin. Sometimes God directly sends suffering into our life or allows suffering to come into our life. So there's, there's a lot of different places that suffering comes from, a lot of different sources of where suffering comes from. But often, it's those big buckets of circumstances and people. But here's, here's the, the big source. See, why is there difficult circumstances? Why is there difficult people? Why is there, why is there foolish living? Why, I mean, why is there sin that sometimes... There's a result. I mean, where where does all of this come from? What's the big underlying cause? Where does suffering come from to begin with in the first place? Well, um, Christmas. Not that's not the the place. This is the beginning of my story. Christmas, 2010. One of the best days of my life. And uh, Christmas is always a good day, but Christmas 2010 was a great day. Because on that day, my wife told me that she was pregnant. And uh, I don't get excited much about a lot of things. And I I enjoy things when they happen, but I I usually don't get excited in anticipation of something. You can psychoanalyze me and you'd probably be correct in wherever that comes from. But I... I, I was thrilled. We'd been, we'd been praying. We had, uh, we had just talked about on vacation previously um, that, hey, let's start trying to have kids. And so Christmas 2010, I mean, man, got Bing Crosby playing. We got, we got just a, a great day. Got presents, stockings. Got beef jerky in your stockings. I mean, it's just it's a great day. You, you guys don't have that in your stocking? I do. Okay, some of you do. You're with me. And also, get to hear, my wife is pregnant. Okay, this is a great day. Send the picture of the little test to, to all the family and friends, and, and it, was, it was great. And then fast forward a couple months, February. And uh, I'm at church. I was working at church. We lived on this side of the street. The church was on this side of the street. And uh, it's a long day. We had several services, so I'm working there all day long. And I was upstairs doing some things and had left my phone downstairs in my office. So I walked downstairs to my office and I don't know, I was going to get my phone for something and, and see, oh, I, I left my phone down here and I have six, seven missed calls from my wife. And so I could have called her back, but I just 
literally takes 30 seconds to go from my office to my bedroom. And so I walked across the street, went in the back door, and uh, opened the door, and on the floor was my wife, and she was sobbing, and she was covered in blood, and she was screaming, I don't want to lose the baby. And uh, that was pretty much the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I just got down and laid next to her, and we cried. And suffering is always increased when it comes from a greater height of joy. So the greater the height of joy, the greater the loss then. If you, if you get married and the next day you found out your spouse cheat on you, then the fall is going to be much greater. An expectation and a desire and all of that of joy than to lose is all the more painful. That year, 2011, we had three miscarriages. Back to back to back. 2012, we may have had a couple more, but they were too early to know. Um, and then since then, it's been a couple years, and we've now been on the opposite end of things, of not being able to have children. Sometimes people ask me, do you have, do you have any kids? And I don't know how to actually answer that. Sometimes I say yes, but not on this earth. And they, they don't they think, what are you, what? Some Martian children walking around. Um, but that year, and ongoingly, even now, with not being able to have children so far, um, was a great deal of suffering. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Where does suffering come from? The first time that we lost the baby, and it was a baby, the first time we lost the baby, the doctor sat us down, and she was well-intentioned and good-hearted, and the first thing they want to tell you is, hey, this is not your fault. It's not because you ate bologna or had a little too much coffee or whatever. It's not your fault. And then the next thing she said was, it's okay. This is natural. And she was wrong. And I know she went to medical school, and I know she's got a degree, and, but she was wrong. See, suffering and death is not natural. It is not the way that God intended things to be. If by natural what is meant is it's common, then yes, it's very common. Suffering and death is very common. We already said that. But it is, it is not natural. You see, the way that God naturally created things was good. God made the world and he said, this is good. And it was life. And it was flourishing and there wasn't difficult circumstances and difficult people. It was paradise. It was perfect relationship with God. It was perfect relationship with one another. It was perfect relationship with the creation around them. It didn't snow in May. It was, it was wonderful. That's how God made the world. He said, it is good. But Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And God told them that the consequence of that, the result of that, would be that death would enter in. Both a spiritual death, where now there's separation between us and God, and a physical death, that now our bodies decay, that now there is sickness, that now there is thistles, that now there is thorns, that now there is viruses, that now there is harm in the world. That things are no longer able to be declared all good. See, God made the world good. But where does this suffering come from? Where does this pain, where do difficult people and difficult circumstances and things not working the way they're supposed to? Why is the world broken? Why is it fractured? It's because of sin. 
Because when our parents rebelled against God, the earth itself rebels against God. And that is what has now ongoingly happened. That suffering comes from sin. And I don't mean directly that the suffering you experience in your life necessarily is a result of your sin, but that the reason that there is suffering at all is not because that's how God intends it to be, but it's because things have become corrupted. That when I saw death in my home, I knew this is a result of a broken world, a world that God did not create. This is a result. This is a picture of what sin is, of what sin does, both spiritually and physically, that it has caused the world to be under this curse. Everybody knows there's something wrong with the world. And if we want to believe that it's natural, that that's just how things are, well, it is how things are, but it's not how God naturally made them to be. So ultimately, suffering, the source, the origin of suffering, it should be a pointer to us that the world and even our own hearts have rebelled against God. That's the source of suffering. But oftentimes when we suffer, we want to know this. We want to know, well, why? Why am I? Why, why me? Why am I suffering? Why? Why? If that's the, the reason, if that's the, that's the source of it, if that's the origin of it, but what's the reason for it? Why am I suffering? That's, that's the next question that we'll look at. Why, why is it that we suffer? Why, why me? Why am I suffering? This is a question that anybody that suffers usually asks. But oftentimes the reasons that we give to, to help understand this are false. The reasons that we give to answer the question, why am I suffering? Why do we suffer? Why? That's what our hearts want to know. Which, by the way, is just a, is just a pointer to the fact that it's unnatural. That immediately when we face suffering, we wonder why that we sense even that it's not supposed to be like this. Often the reasons we give to answer this question are false and unhelpful. See, Paul says, rather, let me, let me back up. One of the reasons that we give is, well, you know, maybe I just, I don't have enough faith. And depending on what tradition you come from, this can become more prominent, or more heightened. But maybe I just don't have enough faith. Maybe the suffering would go away if I just believed, if I just trusted enough, if I just had enough faith, if I just prayed and believed that God would do it. You don't think Paul had faith? I mean, both in the snapshot we see in the Philippian church and him experiencing all the other pains. Sometimes we think, man, it's just because I don't have enough faith. You don't think Paul had faith? Or sometimes we think this, we think, you know, maybe it's because God is uh, punishing me, or maybe because God disapproves of me, or I haven't been living a good enough life. Well, let's talk about that idea, because what that says is that success equals God's favor, and failure equals God's unfavor, displeasure. Often we approach life with that idea. But again, with Paul, it looks like he's failed. Is that because God was displeased with him? Often we look at life and if we see success, we say, yes, God is doing that. If we see failure, ah, God's not doing that. That's not necessarily so. There is not a logical relationship between our suffering and our goodness. There's not a logical relationship between those things, but oftentimes that's how we approach life. And we use morality and goodness as some sort of economic offering between us and God. That God, if I live a good life, then you must bless me. God, if I live a good life, then you must give me the things that I desire. And then when we suffer, we think, wait a minute, God. I, I, I kept up on my end of the bargain. 
I was doing what you said. I was living a good life. I was doing good things. I was obeying you. And, and what's going on over here? Now I've got suffering? Oftentimes, that's, we view it as just this economic relationship that we can put God in our debt by living good. That if we live good, that God will give us what we perceive to be good. But that is not... That is not the case. In fact, the opposite is true. Here's what uh, a couple things. Jesus says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He, He doesn't say in the world you might have this. He doesn't say in the world you'll have this if you're bad. He's talking to his disciples, the leaders, the founders of the church, and he says you're going to have tribulation. Paul says this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my persecution and sufferings that happened to me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, Paul says, everybody, it's it's actually the opposite. It's not live a good life, live a godly life, no suffering. It's anybody that wants to live a good life will be persecuted. No one puts that on t-shirts. No no one has a t-shirt or a coffee mug that says, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. We like the other verses. We ignore these ones. But this is what Jesus says is the reality. This is what Paul says is the reality. That everybody will suffer. And maybe even particularly those that are Christians will suffer. You know, our logo, it's a cross. It's not a swoosh. It's not a crown. It's not golden arches. It's a cross. If you want to call that our logo as Christians. The symbol that we, that we most look to is an object of suffering. Jesus lived a good life, the best life. And the result was suffering. Paul lived a great life, a good life, an honorable life, and the result was suffering. So sometimes we say, why do we suffer? Well, you know, maybe I'm not living good, and God, I don't understand why you would make me like this now that... See, oftentimes the question is not even just why do we suffer. The question oftentimes is directed to God. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? This is actually the most common question that people have about God. If you just type into Google, why does God, it autofills, allow suffering? Probably one of the most questions that you often think about, about God, is why does God allow suffering? When surveys have been done in the country and asked, uh, what objections do you have about God or to Christianity? People wonder, why does God allow suffering. Sometimes this is thought of in the broad scale of the Holocaust or natural disasters, horrible things that happen, and sometimes it's just on the very, very particular individual level. Why does God allow my baby to die? Why does God allow suffering? That's often the question in our hearts. You've, if you've been through suffering, I'm sure you've asked this question. And let me just respond to this in a couple ways. The first way I want to respond to this is if this is an objection for you of the very existence of God. So if this is a, an issue that you come to and just say, I, I, don't even, I can't even get to belief in God because of that. And let, me, let me respond to that. Because... Many people have noted that suffering, rather than disproving God, actually leads us to believe in the existence of God. Because of this, if you look at the world and you say, man, how can there be so much evil in this world? How could God allow that? How would God allow so much evil and injustice? How could God allow 200 girls to be kidnapped and sold into slavery as sex slaves? How could God allow this great injustice, this great evil. How how could God allow that? What you're doing 
from that very place is saying that there's something that is evil and unjust. But those are moral claims. And where are you basing that from? If the world is just natural, then the natural order of things is strong, eat the weak. So you can dislike something, you can not prefer something, but to call it evil and unjust, where do you stand to be able to say that? See, if somebody steals something from you, I had some Amazon packages stolen from our porch several times in a row. I know some of you have had things stolen, one of you recently, a bike stolen from your garage. If you, if you look at that and say, that's, that's evil, that's unjust, how, how come? How come that's evil and unjust? How come it's not just, wow, those guys got some skills? They, man, strong eat the weak. They're stronger, I'm weaker. That's just, it's just natural. Why do we say that's evil, that's unjust? See, if, if a barrier for you to even believing in the existence of God is how could God allow so much evil and injustice, there's somewhere you stand upon to say it's evil and unjust, some objective standpoint. I'm not saying that answers all the questions. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that gives you, oh, well, therefore, man, I love Jesus. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it's just as much of a problem to look at the world and see the suffering from a standpoint of disbelief than it is of belief. Because you have to say, man, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff I don't like, but why does my heart think it's evil? Why does my heart think it's unjust. Second way I would respond to this question of why does God allow suffering is, is this. We don't know. The Bible gives a lot of different reasons of why God allows suffering or brings suffering, but, but even because of that, because of all the different reasons, we don't know. And that's just the honest truth. that We don't know why God allows suffering in any particular instance, in any particular case. We don't know. Paul says that he's experiencing some suffering. And he says, but this has really happened to serve the cause of advancing the gospel. So see, Paul, Paul gets this glimpse of what's really going on behind the scenes. He says, I'm experiencing suffering, but this has really served to bring about the gospel going forward. He gets a glimpse of, of the really, of what's really going on. I don't think he saw it all, but he, he gets a glimpse of it, and sometimes we don't even get that. Paul sees there's a, there's a reason here, and he sees a little bit of it. And I, I don't know the answer to why does God allow suffering in any particular case, but, but, doesn't it make sense that there could be a reason? I mean, I was thinking about this. You know, we take these little precious children, these babies, and take them in to uh, get shots and things, right? And if you're, a, if you're a baby philosopher, if you're just a little baby in your mind, and you're a philosopher, and, and you're thinking, hmm, why does a good parent allow this suffering? You may see no reason why it's right to have a needle jabbed in your arm. If my parent was good, they wouldn't do this. If they were powerful, they would stop it. They must not either be good or powerful. If you were a little baby, this is what you would think. I think. I'm, I'm assuming. I don't remember this. I'm just telling you. But the distance between the little baby's mind and between the parent's mind, there's an infinite gap, a much greater gap between our mind and God's mind. So I'm not telling you I know the answers to it, but I'm just saying, doesn't it make sense that there could be a reason that we can't see, that we don't understand? Doesn't it make sense that there could be? Why does God allow suffering? I don't know in your particular instance, in my particular instance, but, but doesn't it make sense that there could be a reason? That's the, that's the logic of suffering. Often, that's what we want to know and understand. Well, what's going on here? Where does it come from? Why is it happening? That's the logic. 
But what about the experience? See, Paul in the middle of this suffering says, I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. See, in the middle of this great suffering, in the experience of the suffering, Paul says he has joy. Paul says he rejoices. He says it here in in this Philippian section, but in other parts of the Bible, he says the same thing. There's this joy he experiences in suffering. So how do we have joy in suffering? If that's some of the logic of suffering, what about the actual experience? Whether this is where you are now or this is where you will be later this month and you don't even know it. How do we have joy in suffering? Which seems like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Like jumbo shrimp, civil war, joy and suffering. It just doesn't seem like it fits together. It seems very odd to even... I mean, if you've been around the church for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard that phrase, joy in suffering. You might even hate that phrase. It seems like an oxymoron. How does that actually fit in life? Joy and suffering. Well, here's some things we can learn from Paul. And let me first say this. If, if you're somebody that is a friend, and we all will be at some point in life, if you're someone that's a friend to someone that's suffering, part of how they will experience joy and suffering is just by you being a friend, being present and loving and serving and praying and crying. The Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. So if, that's, if, you're, just a, if you're a friend to someone suffering, that's part of how we experience joy and suffering is through community. That's why church, one of the reasons is so important that this is not just a Sunday, but we believe in community, of actually having people that we can share suffering with. But here's some things we learned from Paul. The first is this. We need to cultivate a joy outside of our circumstances, outside of the things that we have. See, if your joy, if your joy is in, is in your circumstances, if your joy is, is in things going well for you, if your joy is in positive life happenings, it's in the things you have, or it's in the people in your life, or it's in things going well for you, if that's where your joy is, If those things are broken, you're broken. If those things are shattered, you're shattered. If those things are destroyed, you're destroyed. If your joy is in life going well, inevitably, part of it is not going to go well. If your joy is rooted in circumstances, which most of the time it is for us, It's if things are going well, I'm happy. If things are going bad, I'm I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm devastated. Sometimes people say things like this, all I need to be happy in life is my children. All I need to be happy in life is a great job that fulfills me. All I need to be happy in life is somebody else that loves me. All I need to be happy in, I mean, if our joy is in our circumstances and the things in our life, ultimately, When those things are broken, we will not just be sorrowful, we will be crushed and devastated. When those things are taken away, it will not just be a sorrow that comes from, yeah, that's sad, this is part of the fallen, broken world. It will be crushing. It will be devastating. It will be hard to even pray because of anger towards God or Bitterness towards other people. Paul has joy because it's not in his circumstances. But often we spend all of our time, all of our money, all of our energy cultivating joy in these other things. This is where we're trying to build this life filled with joy from other sources. 
And that's what we're cultivating joy in. And then it goes away. And we're devastated. Sometimes that's how we even come to Jesus. We come to God thinking, okay, God, I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. All I want is you to bless me with children. All I want is you to bless me with a husband. Bless me with a wife. All I want is for you to, to, to provide these things for me. I, I know, God, that you have plans to, to prosper me and not to harm me. But our definition of that, right? We often even trust God for things He has never said He's going to give. We say, well, I I believe, God. I believe. I trust in You. I have faith in You. I know that You'll come through on this when He hasn't even promised it. God, You've promised to do good to me. You said that You'll work all things for my good. But we have our own definition of what that means. And so, why are we so shocked when suffering happens? Because we believe that we've even come to Jesus, we've even trusted in God to provide things He hasn't even said He's going to give. Well, what's the point then? If He's not going to give me those things. See, if, if, if we want to have joy in the middle of suffering, we have to have a joy that's outside of our circumstances. We have to cultivate a joy that comes from knowing Jesus, that comes from knowing God. There's a foundation with Him. There's a relationship with Him that that though we enter into suffering, there can still be joy. And I'm not talking about a stoicism that looks at life and just goes, eh, doesn't matter. I've got joy in suffering. That's not at all. Paul talks about later in, in Corinthians, he says, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We are perplexed, but not despairing. That's what joy and suffering is. It's that there's a deep undercurrent of joy because what is most precious, what is most valuable, a relationship with God can never be shaken, can never be taken away. Everything else can. In the end, everything else will. On your deathbed, you will lose everything. You will lose your health. You will lose your wealth. You will lose your family. You will lose your friends. You will lose all of the TV shows you love. You will lose it all. Except for the one thing that can be never be taken, which is a relationship with God. See, joy in suffering doesn't mean stoicism in suffering. It means that there's an undercurrent of joy that is most found in God. Which means, part of what that means is as you experience suffering, you know what suffering does to you if you've had it? I was talking to somebody today that said, as they're experiencing some suffering, man, I'm suffering, but I've read more Bible verses this past week than I've ever read in my life. And there's some joy in that. Not in Bible verses themselves, but in suffering that it brings us to God. It creates a deeper dependency. It creates a deeper reliance. And if that's your deepest joy, if God is your deepest joy, then part of how you can have joy in suffering is by saying, I hate that this is happening. I hate, I hate that I'm experiencing the loss of three babies in a year. I hate that I'm experiencing somebody betraying me. I hate that I'm experiencing somebody saying harsh things about me that that loves me or thought loved me. I hate that there's sickness. I hate that there's chronic pain. I hate, but part of why I can have joy in this is because it drives me to God and I have my deepest joy in Him. So part of how we experience joy and suffering is by cultivating a joy outside of our circumstances. Secondly, we need to seek, we need to seek to see things from God's perspective. Paul said, as I mentioned earlier, what what has happened to me has really served for the cause of the gospel. See, 
if we're able to, to try to see things from God's perspective, not that we can fully do that, but if we're able to attempt to see things from God's perspective, that will help us to have joy in the middle of suffering. Part of what it means to see things from God's perspective is to be able to grieve. Sometimes I think that we have trouble in suffering because we just deny it. We just excuse it. We just say, well, you know, it's natural, or oh, it just happened, or oh, that's just how they are. Uh, they don't know any better. Well, these things happen, and I don't think that actually helps. I think part of seeing things from God's perspective is to be able to look at things and say, that was sin. That was wrong. That was evil that was done against me. Or, this is fallen. This is broken. This is not what God intended. I know that in our suffering, that helped to be able to see things from God's perspective. As God looks at this and says, not what I intended. Not how I made things. Part of seeing things from God's perspective is that. Part of it is seeing that God does have a purpose and a design for it, though we might not know what it is. If God could stop it, and He allows it, it means He allows it for our good. Whatever that might be, as hard as that might be to see, if we can trust that I have no idea what's going on here, I don't, I don't get it, but I trust that you have your hand in this. Part of seeing from God's perspective means that in the middle of it, we ask God, hey, show me, God, teach me, help me, help me to understand, help me to know you more through this, expose parts of my heart through this. I mean, I, I don't know what God's trying to do in every case of suffering you will face, but I know this. I know that if you're trying to see things from his perspective and you're asking him, Lord, here I am. Help me. Help me to see what you're doing. Help me to know you more through this. Help me to learn more about you through this. Expose parts of my heart through this that I don't know where they... If, if we're asking him to do those things, then it can at least be received as a gift, even though it may be meant for evil. That God can use it then for good, even if it is sorrowful. Sometimes you're not going to know why God's using it ever. Sometimes it might take years. Many people that have suffered, I know myself, and I'm sure this is true of many of you, can look back on a time of suffering and go, I didn't see it then, but I see now at least a glimpse of what was really going on. Seek to see things from God's perspective. Third way that we can experience joy and suffering is looking for opportunity to use it. Paul said that, man, he's in jail. He's chained. And he's talking about Jesus. I mean, it's like, oh, I'm chained to you. Every hour of every day, I've got a person I'd like to tell you about. He's using it. And I know that if you're in the middle of suffering, that's not usually what you want to hear is, well, hey, just use it. Um, I know that if somebody would have told me in the middle of our suffering, hey, you know what, you can comfort other people that have miscarriages, I wouldn't have cared. But I, but I know that that is something God has allowed to happen now. Part of how we can have joy in the middle of suffering is knowing that God's not going to let it be wasted. And we don't have to have it be wasted that we can use what God has allowed or sent into our life. And finally, how we can have joy in suffering is this. Paul, Paul never lost his sense of God's presence with him. I mean, he's writing this whole letter, and he's praying, and he's giving thanks to God, and he's talking about God. And he's, I mean, his, the whole thing is couched in his great awareness of God's presence with him. I would say one of the greatest ways we can have joy in suffering is to remember God is with me. 
See, what is it that we most want when we're suffering? Other than for it to stop, what is it that we most want in suffering? It's for somebody that identifies with us, that gets it. I mean, oftentimes, um, we either get upset when someone says, hey, I know what you're going through. We're like, what do you, you don't know what I'm going through? Or we actually really feel comforted when someone says, I know what you're going through. And they do. Because one of the things we really want when we're suffering is someone that can identify with it. Someone that's been there. And not just that can identify with it, but also is with us and identifies with us and loves us. And God has done all of that. So here's one of the things that's different about the Christian God versus all other versions of God. That God creates the world and says it's good and now it's broken and fallen and torn and afflicted and filled with sin and filled with harm and filled with trouble and filled with suffering and God enters into it. Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh and entered in to suffering. He entered into suffering. God entered in to suffering. That means that, you know what? Sometimes we don't know why God allows suffering. We look at it and say, why God? But we know it can't be because he doesn't care. It can't be because he doesn't get it. Because he entered into it himself. He walked into the middle of suffering. He experienced the worst that this world has to offer. He experienced relational suffering, betrayal. He experienced physical suffering. He experienced a spiritual suffering of separation from God on the cross. He experienced every suffering the world has to offer and entered into it knowingly, willingly, lovingly. This verse was one of the most helpful verses for my wife and I and has been one of the most helpful verses as I've talked to people that are experiencing suffering. Paul says this in Romans. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And let me just pause here. What's interesting is you're, you're going to, if you're not super familiar with this passage, you're going to know some of it which is just how twisted Christians are. Because you're only going to know the good parts of it. But out of context, man, this is in the middle of suffering that this is written. But we know the verse, if God's for us, who can be against us? Well, there's a lot that could be against us. Paul's talking about ultimately. But let's keep reading, and you'll notice some of it, maybe, and not all of it. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding. That means praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? He doesn't say we're not going to go through those things. As it is written, this sounds pretty bad, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors. Another popular verse, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what this says. Jesus suffered with us. 
So he identifies with us through and through. And not only that, but Jesus suffered for us, which shows his great love. We can never be separated from God's love. I don't know what's going to happen to you in your life. I don't know what kind of suffering you're going to face, but I know you will face it. And what is true is we know that because of the cross, that Jesus is with us, that he is for us, and that he loves us. No matter if it's death, no matter if it's being killed all the day long, Jesus is with us. And because of that, you're more than a conqueror. Not just some, I'm more than a conqueror. But because you have his love, you can conquer anything that would come your way. You can have joy in the middle of anything that would come your way because you have his love. That's the great truth of the gospel. 